Genesis, going through the story of God's faithfulness with his covenant family in Egypt. Uh, Today, picking up in chapter 42, as Joseph's brothers are reunited uh, with the brother that they tried to get rid of and unsuccessfully. Genesis chapter 42 today, reading verses 1 through 38. You can find that beginning on page 35 of our ESVs. We picked one up on the way in. Genesis chapter 42. Before we read God's word, please join me again in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we pray that as your word is open before us, that you would open our hearts. That your word, which is living and active, would divide us between joint and marrow, spirit and soul. Would lay us bare before you, so that you would be able to do the work uh, of uniting us together again and making us whole in Jesus Christ. Help us to see something of our Savior here today, uh, as the scriptures point to him and remind us of the one who gave himself for us to be the provider the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Help us to see and to rejoice in who you are for us and to be better worshipers of you because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to All the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. And by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. He put them all together in custody, For three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God, 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go. Carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? You did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with his father in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and Take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him into my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, you have noticed as we've gotten into chapter 42 that there's a shift in this story. Up until now, the focus has been on Joseph, largely, with that brief interlude in chapter 38. But we've seen Joseph and we've seen God's work in Joseph to shape his character. And he's been thrust out into the harsh realities of the world, and he's faced suffering, but the Lord has caused Joseph to excel, and he's established, and he is promoted. In chapter 42, the camera angle changes, as it were. Joseph's family comes again into view, and maybe like Joseph, you were beginning to forget about them, but there they are, and there's the famine, and they're languishing under hunger, 
staring blank-eyed at one another as the famine creeps across the land. And for the next few chapters, this is what we're going to be looking at. These are the men that will captivate us. And it's a reminder that this story has never really been just about Joseph at all. He was not the end game. That's what it said back in chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. That's how the whole story began. This is a family story. I suppose if, if God's objective had been simply to establish Joseph, then chapter 41 would have been a fine place to end. He's got a good job. He's raising a family. He's praising the Lord that he is, faith, he is fruitful and he is forgetful in the land. The Lord has blessed him, and, and that would be a good place to stop. But the Lord brings us back, back to Canaan, back to these scoundrel brothers of Joseph, back to his promises to the patriarchs to bless the whole earth through this family which seems so very dysfunctional. And we are faced, yet again, in this study in Genesis, and it will not be the last time that we see it, we are faced with the God who is utterly determined to work out his purposes for the people he has chosen. He will let nothing stand in the way of fulfilling the promises he has made. So we see that again. But we also need to consider today exactly what it is that stands in the way of his promises, and his fulfillment. This wayward family, what are the obstacles that they have set up for the Lord to, to traverse in order to bring about the fulfillment? That's the way that you can measure someone's uh, determination, by the way. You look at the obstacles that they're willing to wrestle with. How far are they willing to go? Will they only go until the course gets difficult, or will they stay? Will they continue? Will they persevere? The home that I lived in when I was a teenager sat on the bank uh, of a pretty large creek, uh, which in 2010 was named the second most polluted waterway in the United States. That's a different story. Uh, it sat on the bank of a, a, a rather large uh, creek, uh, and every spring, at least once a year, the water would flow over the banks of the Conequinessing Creek, and it would come at least into the yard and, and probably into the driveway. And there were these minor floods. But the year after we moved out, the whole neighborhood was underwater. Several feet of water in every home for about a half a mile. And the people that were there, when the waters receded, they were left with a choice. Are they going to rebuild? Are they going to walk away? Now, I know that some of the folks from this congregation years ago went and, and did some flood recovery in New Orleans on a mission trip. And so you know the kind of uh, mess that faces a family that has to decide what they're going to do with their home that has been filled with water. It is not an easy fix. It is not uh, like one of those home renovation shows that you see on HGTV where it's a fresh coat of paint and some new granite countertops and everything looks sparkly and new. And, uh, flood damage gets in the cracks and the crevices and it seeps into the walls and you've got to rip out the drywall and the insulation. You've got to gut the house down to the studs and Start all over again. This is not an easy fix. And some people uh, took the hard road, and, and they did rebuild. And, and some of the homes were demolished. There are now, if you drive down that road, you can see the ones and the choices that they made. You can see some of the empty lots where the homes were simply leveled and the people walked away. Well, the house that was next door to where I lived, they began the work to restore and to rebuild. And it seems that they got maybe about halfway there. 
At least they did the demolition. I remember driving by and seeing the dumpster outside, and the doors were open. You could see inside. You could see the, the drywall was gone, and the studs were exposed, and the carpet was torn up and thrown into the dumpster. It looked like they were about to rebuild, but they stopped. They just walked away. And it still sits there, just kind of a shell that's been abandoned by someone. And, and I don't know. I mean, I can't blame them. Uh, that's a difficult job, but I wonder how far they went before their determination or their resources ran out. This is what we need to see in this passage today, with this dysfunctional family, the way that the Lord perseveres to bring about these things. His purposes in his people, his determination, even though it is not a quick fix to bring about what this family needs. It's not simply a matter of picking them up and dropping them into Egypt because there are tensions that are far deeper than that, sin that has inundated their lives and seeped into every single crack and crevice as it has flooded them. And the whole family full of iniquity and deep-seated patterns of sin and hatred toward one another. And the Lord needs to do a difficult job to work beneath the surface. This is not an easy chapter to read. The Lord goes about this work through some pretty dramatic measures. There's famine. There's hunger, there is fear of death, there is imprisonment. There is a father who is 130 years old almost, and 20 years on he still cannot get over the son that he loved so much and was his favorite, and he still seems to be holding on to his favoritism and his own sin, and the Lord is going to work in all of these things. But all of it, all of these drastic measures are motivated by God's determination to bring about his purposes. And we need to see that this is the way that the Lord works in our lives as well. Often we are confounded and confused. And we see that our, life, our lives meander in ways, and our circumstances meander in ways that, that leave us puzzled as to what the Lord might be doing with us. But the example of the next few chapters, really, ought to show us that God is working to restore his people below the surface level. That there is something he is doing to to get into the hidden areas of our lives that we want to keep for ourselves, we want to keep hidden, maybe from one another or from ourselves or from him. But his determination does not let us get away with that. That he works to expose the hidden sins of his chosen people. And we're going to see some of the ways that the Lord does that. The first way that he does that for this family is that he faces them with a need that they cannot meet. That's where we find them in the beginning under threat of famine. Chapter 42 picks up where chapter 41 left off. We, we saw the seven years of plenty that Joseph spoke of, of to Pharaoh. And they've come and they've gone, and now the famine is in the land and everyone is coming. Everyone is going to Joseph to buy, and now the famine is there. And at the end of chapter 41, verse 57, it says, the famine was severe over all the earth. And chapter 42 makes it clear that God's covenant family is not exempt from the ravages of hunger. There they are with the rest of the people. They're in the muck of life with everybody else, and this famine has touched them as well. And these brothers seem to be uncharacteristically idle here. These are men of action, remember. Think back to the, uh, the ordeal at Shechem, and their sister is defiled, and they slaughter a whole village to get even. We remember Judah and Tamar in chapter 38. And when finally it is supposed that Tamar has been guilty of harlotry, bring her out and burn her. 
Judah knows exactly what to do. He's a man of action. His brothers take matters into their own hands. Here's this brother we don't like. Let's get rid of him. Let's do something about it. And in verse, 40, in verse 1 of chapter 42, Jacob says to his sons, why are you standing there looking at one another? Well, this is a need that, that they can't deal with on their own. They can't just be men of action. They can't just make grain appear where there is no grain. This is a famine, Dad. We, we can't do anything about this. But he says, I've heard that there's grain down in Egypt, and so why don't you go down there? And he sends them to the only place that grain can be found. And notice what it says in verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel, that's the first place in Scripture, by the way, that that phrase shows up, the sons of Israel. It pictures Israel as a nation, although it's only ten men going down into Egypt. But here is the chosen nation, the chosen people of God, and the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. There they are. That's where God's chosen people are. They're among the others. They're part of this massive caravan of people going down to Egypt, carrying their silver in exchange for a full belly, trying to survive the hunger for however long it might last. And this is the beginning of God's recovery efforts with these men. He pulls back his hand of blessing. He leaves them exposed to the ravages of hunger and hardship that are common throughout human experience. Folks, don't miss the seriousness of this situation. Jacob speaks of this in terms of life and death. That's what famine is. It is death. This is the nightmare that still haunts agricultural societies. Famine means that there is no grain to eat, there is no grain to plant, and there probably will be no grain next year because we've already run out. And our crops are wilted, our livestock are dying. And parents are grieved as their children are crying out of hunger pangs and they can do nothing to feed their bellies. This is a serious situation. This is death. Some people get cynical. Maybe this is a step too far. God is clearly in charge of this famine. He said as much back in chapter 41 when Joseph said, the Lord has shown you what he is going to do. The Lord is in charge. And are we to think that God who claims to be loving and forgiving and compassionate would put the entire ancient Near East under the press of famine in order to make a point to one family? Is that what God is doing? Well, yes, actually. Yes, it is what God is doing. Let's not lose sight of, of what's happening here. This isn't unjustified in a sense. What is famine but a picture of the curse that is over all creation because of the sin of man? We read back in Genesis chapter 3 that sin enters the world and with it comes suffering. There's a scourge on creation that says that man will eat of the fruit of the earth through toil and sweat and pain. And man will labor, and ground will not yield, and you will plant, and you will get back thorns and thistles. There is a futility cast over all creation because of the sin of men. And we groan as we feel its effects. But God's wake-up call for these men begins when he allows them to feel the ravages, the effects of sin that is everywhere in our broken world. He just removes his hand of blessing just a little bit, and their lot is cast with the multitude. And they face hunger the way the rest of the world faces hunger, and they face need the way the rest of the world faces need, and they are brought face to face 
with their inability to provide for themselves. And they go down among the others to buy in Egypt. Folks, sometimes one of the most gracious things the Lord can do for his people is to remove his hand of physical and material blessing. To allow his straying people to experience hardships of life in a broken world. There is something about suffering that makes God's people serious about prayer. Serious about repentance and serious and bold enough to speak of the gospel that sometimes otherwise we might be too timid to mention to our friends. And so moments of our unmet needs, when we finally see them, they become what they were for these brothers, parables of our dependence. Teachable moments to show us that the Lord is the one who preserves and keeps, even though we think we are in control. And we are the masters of our fate, and we can make the future turn out in every way that we might imagine it. And where there is a will, there is a way. But moments of need show us how much we rely upon the Lord and his provision. They show us that the Lord is determined to work in his people below the surface level of our comfort and of our ease and our self-sufficiency. I wonder how many of the people in this room have found that to be the case. We live for years with this sort of comfortable but shallow Christianity until the Lord faced you with something that you could not handle and a need that you could not meet and you began to see the Lord as more capable and more sufficient than you ever imagined him to be before. There are lots of different ways that shows up, lots of different needs. It's not always a sin issue, but sometimes it is. Sometimes our needs expose those sins that we've tried to hide. Sometimes it exposes our lack of faith or the way that we go astray and, and try to find our joy in the things of this life and we gather to ourselves possessions and we become materialistic as that sin that plagues the Western church and we build up our houses and we get a boat and another car and a summer home and we think that all these things will make us happy and then something happens and all those boats and those houses and those possessions can't even touch the surface of what we need. It brings us to see that there is something greater than all this and the Lord is working beneath the surface in his people. That's how God works to restore us. Sometimes he faces us with a need that we can't meet. Secondly, with uh, this family, he shows them a plan that they were unable to accomplish. You remember back in Dothan, somewhere in a pasture, somewhere in a well, that these brothers had the perfect plan. They've got this problem, their little brother. More than that, their little brother is daddy's favorite and he tends to tattle on us, and he has these dreams of grandeur and superiority. And I know what we'll do. We'll get rid of him. We'll get rid of Joseph, and in the process, we'll get rid of the unsavory thought that this bratty little twerp will someday rule over us. That was the plan. Chapter 37, verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Here's the idea. Get rid of Joseph and get rid of his supremacy over them. And you remember their twistings and their controversy and their conspiracy and their lie. And it's not until chapter 42, verse 6, that we hear that note of divine fulfillment 
and they thought they had it made, they thought that their plan had worked, and suddenly they find themselves in Egypt, and what does it say? And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. It goes further, because as you look throughout this passage, they begin to call Joseph our Lord. And they refer to themselves as your servants. This is the last thing they wanted when Joseph was just 17 and having these wonderful dreams. And these men are wicked. They are conniving and they're hateful, but they are pitiful failures. All the energy that went into their plot and all those years of pretending that Joseph was gone, all of it to keep Joseph from reigning over them, and they come and they bow themselves with their faces to the ground. Perhaps worst of all, they, they aren't even aware of what's going on. The text zeroes in on this idea of recognition. Joseph is the one who recognizes, but the brothers are completely in the dark. We see it several times, uh, verses 7 and 8. It says that Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them in verse 7. And down again in verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. In fact, in verse 7, where our ESV says that he treated them like strangers, a better translation would be uh, he made himself unrecognizable to them. It shares the same root. Four times in two verses, that same word shows up. There's this lack of recognition. These men have fallen headlong. There's a psalm that speaks of, of the wicked men digging a hole and falling into the snare that they have laid, and here they are. All of their plans and all of their efforts, and they don't even see how far they have fallen and how much of a failure they are. Now, this idea of, of recognition is actually pretty significant in the overall flow of the story of Joseph and his family. This was the same word back in chapter 37 that they posed to their father, the same question. They sent uh, that blood-soaked robe, and they said, recognize whose this is. And their father recognized it and said, it is my son. This is the same word that showed up in chapter 38 when Tamar was being brought out, and she sent to Judah, and she said, recognize whose these are the cord and the signet and the staff, and he recognized. You see, recognition in this larger story has been a tool for deception and for vindication, and the fact that these ten murderous brothers have no idea what is going on right in front of their faces shows how far their sin has blinded them and how much they are in over their heads and they don't even know it. They don't even recognize the way that God is working through Joseph. I think that's actually what we need to see in this chapter. If you know what happens to chapters like this and stories like this in the hands of critics and scholars, they say, well, you know that Joseph, uh, he seems like he's not such a great guy after all. He seems rather vindictive. He's just angry with his brothers, so he throws them in the clink for a few nights, and he's trying to torment them, and he's trying to get under their skin, and he's just toying with his brothers and trying to get even, but that's not it at all. By the grace of God, Joseph is an instrument in the hands of the Lord. He is cunning and compassionate. Notice the way he lavishes gifts upon his brothers. In verse 25, it says, uh, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. He didn't have to do all that. And I, I don't think, actually, that it was just to torment them because he does the same thing later when they start to leave. 
And in, uh, in chapter 45, or 44, I believe it is, he not only puts the money back, but he puts the cup in, uh, in Benjamin's bag, and then he sends his steward out. He's not concerned about the money. He's just concerned about the cup because that's the way he brings them back. He's actually blessing his brothers. He is using this facade, in a sense, only to get them to consider what they have been doing. One commentator I read said it's kind of like a fake punt in football. It's a strategic play. He's not trying to get back at them, but he is, he's needling them in just the right areas to show them their sin and to bring them to recognize the failure of their plot. And they don't even recognize it yet, but he is lavishing gifts upon them. And his affections are warm toward them. Three times in the next few chapters, Joseph is going to have to leave his brothers and turn away because he's overcome with emotion. He's a man's man, but he's not afraid to cry, and he weeps over his brothers. He, I think if it was left to Joseph, he would have said right away, I'm Joseph, your brother, bring the whole family down. But the Lord is working in him almost against his nature, against his affections for his brothers. The Lord is working in Joseph because there's something greater that needs to happen than just full belly. And the Lord is using him. By God's grace, Joseph is so wise that he understands that his family is in need of reconciliation, and Joseph so far is the only one who recognizes that. But the way the Lord is going to work is through this process of revealing what they don't see now. Revealing to these brothers the utter failure of their plans to frustrate God's purposes in Joseph. He's going to expose their attempts to bring about what they thought was most necessary in their lives. How can we be happy? I know. We'll get rid of Joseph, that little brother, and then everything will be smooth sailing. He's going to expose the foolishness of rejecting the only man the Lord has appointed to bring blessing and reconciliation to God's chosen people. It is not unlike the way that the Lord exposed the failure and the sin of Saul of Tarsus. When the moment of revelation finally came and he was knocked to the ground and he saw the light and he heard the voice and who are you, Lord? And I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And later he would write to the Philippians and he'd look back on a whole life of schemes and plans and all the things that he thought were really good and zealous for the law, a persecutor of the church. And he says, I count it all dung and it's all to be given away and it's all trash and rubbish. What a failure. What wasted energy chasing down all these things that I thought were best in the world and the greatest thing the Lord ever did for me, Paul would have said, is to show me what a failure all of that stuff was that I was engaged in. He exposed to these brothers, he exposed to Paul the foolishness and the failure of a plan that didn't go the way that he wanted it to. And that's the way that he works sometimes in us. It's not unlike the way that the Lord opens the eyes of those who have been blind to him for years. Who have rejected the only one whom the Lord has appointed to provide salvation for his chosen people. Who have heard the gospel and rejected the gospel. And yet God in his kindness brings them step by step, sometimes unbeknownst to them. And they don't even know that they're moving in the direction until it happens. And finally they see. And their eyes are open to recognize what God has been doing 
And sometimes in that process, what happens, we think, oh, that moment of conversion is just an overjoyous time, and and it's a, a wonderful time for anybody who experiences it. But sometimes there is great regret over years wasted chasing things that could not suffice. And sometimes that's the way the Lord works. And there's pain and there's heartache when we finally see all of the efforts and all of the plans that we wanted to go one way, but God in His grace seems to turn in His own direction. And it's to show us just how deep our sin goes and just how determined He is to reconcile us to Himself. And so there is a need that they can't meet and there is a plan that uh, that they can't bring about, but there's also a sin that they couldn't hide. And this is where the, the chapter is moving all along. We finally get to the heart of the matter and their guilt over their brother. You see where it shows up in verse 21. The moment that it happens, they're brought out after three nights in prison. That will have a sobering experience, a sobering effect on a lot of people, by the way. Uh, we sometimes get uh, hard-hearted. We hear stories of criminals coming in and out and in and out of prison, but the Lord see fits very often to bring people to a moment of rock bottom, some might call it. Well, this is rock bottom for these brothers. Here they are in an Egyptian prison, probably the same prison that Joseph was in. This was the place where all the king's prisoners were confined. And there they are, getting just a taste of what Joseph endured for three years, you know. Between slavery and imprisonment, it's been 13 years that he was there. And they've got three nights, and they come out rock bottom. And this is what they say, verse 21. They say to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And then we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, begged us, and we did not listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us. Hope you understand what an indictment that is of their sin. This is the detail that was left out in chapter 37, that while Joseph was in the pit, or while they were throwing him into the pit, he was crying out. In chapter 37, it doesn't focus on that. Joseph is silent. We don't see anything or hear anything from Joseph. We only see the plot of the brothers, but it's not until chapter 42 that they say, he begged us and we would not listen. You know what this means. They can't look at this and say, oh, it was a crime of passion. I was overcome. There was deliberation. They put him in the pit and they sat down to have lunch and to discuss, what are we going to do with dear old Joseph over there? How are we going to be rid of him? And now, 22 years later, maybe, these brothers are speaking of it as though it just happened. As though Joseph's cries are still echoing in their hearts. And I don't know if they've ever ever had this conversation before. It might be that, I don't know, maybe Zebulun, he's the sensitive one. And anytime anything happens, he brings it up to his brothers. I, I bet this is because of Joseph, I'm telling you. This is why this is happening. And it, oh, come on. Who knows? Who knows how many times they've had this conversation? Who knows if altogether they have stuffed it so far down that they, they have almost completely forgotten it? You know, in your own families, there are certain things that you, you do not talk about. Maybe the Joseph incident was off limits for these brothers, and they tried to ignore it. But whether they talked about it all the time, whether they were silent over the years, they're talking about it now, and they are moved to declare their guilt to come out with their confession because that's where Joseph has been moving them. You notice the test that Joseph puts to them. It is a test primarily of their honesty. That's what they said in verse 11. We're all sons of one man, 
We are honest men. We're brothers and we're honest. Oh, the irony. Because here's the one person who knows the truth better than they even do, that brotherhood and honesty don't mean a whole lot in Jacob's family. Oh, we're all brothers together. We're, there are 12 of us, actually. And they speak of Joseph as though he somehow still has something to do with the family. But we're honest men. And Joseph presses into this area of their honesty. He's like an ER doctor. You take your child and they've got road rash and the dirt and the grit is in there because they crashed on their bike and you're now in the ER and they have to do something. They've got to scrub it out even though the child doesn't want it to happen and Joseph is scrubbing on this wound to bring all of the dirt to the surface. Now you're honest, huh? Well, let's test your honesty. And so he, he tells them, we're going to test and see if there is truth in you. We're going to see if your words can be verified. We're going to see if you're honest men. Do you notice how many times these same phrases show up? They repeat it when they go back and they tell their father. We told him we were honest. He said he wants to see if we're honest and how honest we are. And he presses in here this question of honesty to these men who sold their brother and covered their sin with the blood of a goat. That's the first thing that Joseph does. But secondly, he also brings up the reminder of the fear of God. Notice in verse 18. He leaves them all in prison for three evenings, but on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, uh, he's been playing the part of an Egyptian all along. He's got the interpreter. He even says things that an Egyptian would say. By the life of Pharaoh, that's how you would make some important claim if you were a, an Egyptian official, because there was no higher power in the land. And if you can be all right with Pharaoh, then you're okay. But now he brings them out, and he says, actually, there is a higher power. And, and the subtext is, I'm going to let you go just in case you are actually here to get grain for your families. I don't want to act unjustly toward you and cause suffering to those who haven't deserved any sort of suffering, so I'm going to let you take grain back to your families because there is a higher power, there is a judge who sees all the injustices of the world, and I don't want to run afoul of that Lord and that judge. And he brings out these two tactics. Well, let's see if you're honest. Let's see what you think about the judgment of the Lord, and the fear of God. It's that combination of the two that lays them bare, and that's why it's so important in verse 21. They said to one another, in truth. Here's the honest truth. You want to know about our honesty, Joseph. You want to know if we fear the Lord. Who are, when we, who are we when we are stood before uh, the judgment of God? In truth, we are guilty. Though they've denied it for so long, the Lord sees the blood on their hands. And this is God's kindness to drag their confession out of them. This is not the end of the story. Uh, this is really just the beginning of God's work in them. But the first step is showing them how much they have not been able to hide their sin. They have not been able to stuff it away where nobody can see it and they don't have to think about it and they'll never have to account for it. And he shows them the sin that they were unable to cover. In fact, it goes a little bit further. They weren't able to hide it from themselves, and it, it seems they weren't even able to hide it from their father. You see what Joseph, I'm sorry, what Jacob says to them when they come back. Here comes this band of brothers, and one of them is missing, and their pockets are full of silver. We've seen that before, haven't we? 
And what does Jacob say? You've done it again. You have bereaved me of my children, plural. And he lays on them, Joseph and Simeon. He says, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to try and take Benjamin away. Not a chance. Do you remember that moment, maybe somewhere in your mid-20s, maybe a little bit later, if it took that long, where you finally realized that your parents were way smarter than you always thought they were. And there were so many things that you thought you got away with. And you came in late, and nobody's going to hear me, and you're going to go this way, and nobody's going to know it. And then finally someday you realize, yeah, they knew about a whole lot of it. Now this is that moment for these brothers. You have bereaved me. And they couldn't even hide their sin from their father. He has been, he's been thinking about it and, uh, and, uh, and wondering, perhaps. He's been skeptical of their whole story. For 22 years, what has happened to Joseph? And I think he thinks, he blames them. Folks, what a blessing of the Lord when our sin finally comes crashing down around us. It happens for God's people. We are not exempt from seeing those sins and having them rise to the surface that we thought we were done with and rid of and didn't have to think about anymore. Sometimes it happens for you the way that it happened kind of like for Joseph. Somebody preaches a message to you and they tell you about your sin and they call your sin to account and they remind you of the justice of the Lord and those two things come together and there is conviction. Sometimes if our consciences are prepared and and we're sensitive to what the Lord is doing, sometimes it shows up in the kindness of somebody else that we see something and we say, well, we don't deserve this. And we're already dealing with our guilt and something happens and the Lord shows us how vile we are. What a blessing of the Lord when we should see that. Sometimes it happens when somebody else is wise enough to see through that facade you thought you had put up and nobody could penetrate and they call you to the carpet. Sometimes it happens through the regular reading of the scriptures, the coming again and again to the Lord's table and faith and repentance and self-examination. However it happens, one thing is certain, that conviction of sin is the work of God in his people. It is proof that he is working beneath the, sur- the surface to make us sensitive to his word and pliable by his spirit. Beware the moment that your conscience is so seared that you no longer think about the sin that plagues you. Beware the moment that your heart is so hardened that you no longer hear the voice of conviction. We live in a world that wants to tell us that the worst thing in all the world is to feel guilty or to feel shameful. And at all costs, what you ought to do is to be rid of guilt and shame and any sort of feelings of not measuring up by reminding yourself that there really is no power above, nobody else you have to to measure up to, no other standard beyond your own. And make yourself happy and go the way that you want to go and be rid of all those trappings, that puritanical upbringing where there's some God watching over you. The voice that says those things in our culture that is so prevalent is a lie from the pit of hell. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and then comes the judgment. There is the truth. The Lord has given us guilt and shame for a reason. It is to warn us of the danger of our sin, to prepare us to recognize that we have to face the judgment on the last day, and it's given to cause us to despair of our own ability to weave together garments of righteousness that we can make. Just like it was for these brothers, there is only one man that the Lord has appointed to provide for his people. 
He is not in Egypt. He is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only one who came and fulfilled all the law's demands on our behalf. And though he was completely righteous, died a sinner's death, was resurrected on the third day, and is now at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for the saints, pleading his own righteousness and his blood and his sacrifice and not our own. What a blessing when the Lord shows us the need of our sin that we cannot meet by our own efforts. What a kindness to show us the things that lie beneath the surface. Oh, sometimes I think we want the Lord maybe just to leave us alone. Maybe just to to help us to be comfortable, to help us to get through life and go to work and have a happy day and to cruise into the weekend and we can show up in church and we can feel good because we came to the table and we can think that everything is good but the Lord won't let us rest because he's working beneath the surface because there are things that are deeper than all of this. He is determined to work in his people where it really counts and where it matters. He will not let his purposes falter for his people, his promises that he's given. And so he presses home all the futility of going after these things that we think will meet our needs. And he shows us the need of our unrighteousness that is greater than we could ever bear. And he shows us the sin that we think we have hidden for so long. All of us in order to turn us to the only one who can provide for us. I hope that you're turning to him today. I know that many of you are. I know that this chapter doesn't end on an upswing, and we're not going to see an upswing with these brothers for a few more chapters, but this is the reminder that we have today, that we're going to come to this table, and it's going to be something that is provided for you. Sustenance. Bread and a cup a picture of the way the Lord provides for us, not just the things that keep our bodies going, but spiritual sustenance in Jesus Christ, the only provider for God's people, the only one who can meet the need need of our unrighteousness. So let's come to him in faith and in repentance, being laid bare before him and recognizing that he is the only one the Lord has appointed for us. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, giver of all good gifts, thank you that you have appointed Christ for us. I pray that you would give us conviction of sin, that you would help us to see that there is nothing that we can hide from you, that there is no place that we can turn where our sin will not be seen. Thank you for conviction. Thank you for sensitive consciences. Thank you for hearts that you shape by your gospel word to show us our insufficiency and to show us your ability and your determination. That you should never leave us or forsake us, that you should bring together all of the promises that you have for your people, and that they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ, your Son. Help us, O Lord, to look to him. Help us not to look to ourselves, but to believe in the one you sent for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.